Hello, and welcome to People of the Pod, brought to you by American Jewish Committee. Each week, we take you beyond the headlines to help you understand what they all mean for America, Israel, and the Jewish people. I'm your host, Manya Brashear-Pashman. Last December, during a meeting at the White House, AJC CEO Ted Deutsch urged the Biden administration to create a national strategy to combat anti-Semitism. To aid that effort, AJC convened another meeting at the White House, this time with anti-Semitism envoys from around the world who have worked closely with AJC to develop strategies for their own nations. With us today are two of those envoys, Katerina von Schnurbein, European Commission Coordinator on Combating Antisemitism and Fostering Jewish Life, and Felix Klein, Federal Government Commissioner for Jewish Life in Germany and the Fight Against Antisemitism. Katerina, Felix, welcome to People of the Pod. Pleased to be with you, Manja. Thank you for having us. So, Katerina, this is our second conversation about this topic on the podcast. You joined us in 2021 to talk about the EU's first strategy on combating anti-Semitism and fostering Jewish life, which I believe had nearly 90 strategies to tackle the problem. So can you give us a progress report on that strategy and what lessons from that process you were able to share at the White House? Yes, Mania, we basically started the implementation of this strategy on the day after it was adopted. And we have at the moment roughly 55 of those initiatives somehow put in motion. Some of them are projects that are local or are projects that are within the European Commission in terms of initiatives that we have, you know, strategies that we have in other areas where we needed to include specific action on anti-Semitism and others are European-wide networks. We've launched a network on young European ambassadors to promote Holocaust remembrance. In November last year, we launched a consultation process that will lead to a network on places where the Holocaust happened all across Europe in the next eight years that will be established and that is a important initiative to show how local the Holocaust happened and how people had a choice of where they wanted to stand. And so this whole range of tackling online antisemitism, ensuring education, ensuring security of Jewish communities, making sure that the Holocaust is remembered and that we know the facts and that we can transmit the facts to young people, to those who are joining European society from outside, all of this has been put in motion and we see that you know there is slow but important change happening. When I came into office in 2018, I thought the United States is immune against anti-Semitism. There wouldn't be a, a problem. This is uh, where we where we have to look at how, how it works. And uh, I was really impressed by the way the Biden administration, members of Congress, acknowledged that there is really a problem now uh, and that it has to be faced. This is a very honest sign of uh, uh, the decision makers in the U.S. that something has to be done. and. Uh, the initiative to to work out a national action plan is a concrete result of this. Felix, you did travel to Israel with AJC as part of Project Interchange to see what's happening on the ground there. So clarify for me, has Germany adopted the strategy that Katerina and I talked about in 2021, or did Germany develop its own? 
We were very pleased that Katarina and the EU Commission, of course, presented its first ever EU strategy and in 2021. And uh, in, in that document, and even before, the European Council called for national strategies that every EU member state should adopt. And we waited until the EU strategy was adopted in order to have our document that, that it would fit into the EU framework. And we presented a German national strategy for the fight against anti-Semitism and for Jewish life in November last year. Katharina was in Berlin. I was very happy to have her as an ally there. We presented it to the German public and we really were very happy that we got a very positive response. It is a strategy document, of course, that formulates goals. We did not want to present a catalog you know, on, on the measures we are doing, but we thought the strategy should be a document that gives you advice where where society, where a country should go to in the fight against anti-Semitism. And now, of course, it's up to us and not only politicians and administrations and educators, but the whole of society to implement it. This is my current work now. As you know, in the United States, our political leadership can change every four years. How did you set up the structures in Germany to make sure that they couldn't be changed by a different political party? One of our cross-sectional dimensions of the strategy is the setting up of structures that are actually responsible to do this, to create ownership, regardless of the political leadership of our country. So my office is a structure like this. So regardless of who is a chancellor in Germany, you should have a, someone who is responsible for coordinating all the government measures. Uh, we have set up a joint federal and state commission in Germany that that uh, looks after the implementation. But I try to involve really everybody, uh, football clubs, uh, the schools, um, businesses, etc., to have a more strategic look on the fight against anti-Semitism. Maybe one of the most important structures we set up is the creation of anti-Semitism commissioners within prosecuting offices all over Germany. So you have specialists within the structure itself that are focal points and can be asked by, by colleagues whether a case, for instance, is anti-Semitic or not. And these structures will last regardless of the political leadership in Germany. Katarina, how about you? Are there structures in place or measures in place to kind of inoculate that strategy plan from you know falling victim to politics and getting tossed out the window? by people who just simply don't like the authors. Yes, absolutely. In fact, what we have done is very much in the beginning of the drafting process of the strategy to decide that it would run until 2030, which means it includes also the next EU commission. This is a long-term commitment of the European Commission of the European Union. We see this also before the backdrop of our history. We have, and as an institution, the responsibility to address anti-Semitism in all its forms and to make sure that Jews can go about their lives in line with their religious and cultural traditions and that they see a future for themselves in Europe. And for that, this 2,000-year-old problem is not going to go away in one mandate. So we need to have this long-term perspective and make sure that the commitments we start, also the networks about which I talked in the beginning, they are not set up overnight. We need to see this as a long-term perspective. And that's really what we want to ensure by creating, again, these structures. And I think really, if we look at what has happened in the last years, this is the main change 
that because we have raised, thanks also to the IRA definition, increasingly awareness about the fact that anti-Semitism is a threat to the Jews, needs to be addressed, and is a threat also to our democracies. It's the canary in the coal mine. Therefore, we need to address this holistically from the various angles. And that's how member states have made the commitment to have national strategies. That's how we see cities adopting strategies and regional special envoys being adopted, but all uh, appointed, but also that, for example, in some countries, no case on anti-Semitism is closed without a consequence. So even if it is not illegal what the perpetrator did, still there should be a societal consequence for it. So these are very concrete measures that are being structurally implemented and this structural change is there to stay. And that I think is what we have achieved because what is sometimes frustrating is that at the same time, we see anti-Semitism as such is still on the rise with a war, with a pandemic, with inflation, with all the conspiracy myths really exploding in the first few months of the pandemic, the sources of anti-Semitism are still there. And therefore, until the structures come into effect or have their effect and then trickle down to the countries and to the cities and to really the general population, it will take some time. But the sources and the veins are there now to make sure that this can happen. One very useful tool for helping authorities identify anti-Semitism has been the IRA working definition adopted by the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance in 2016. Was that a guiding rubric for your discussions at the White House? Of course, you have to define it to know what we are talking about. And in that respect, of course, there are tools. We talked about the IRA working definition of anti-Semitism that helps educators, but also people in the security field to discern anti-Semitism and to do something about it. And of course, that was part of the discussion. And we are, of course, very pleased also here from Germany that also we have that international instrument the working definition of anti-semitism so to have a common fight of course in times of internet and social media we need to develop international tools in the fight against anti-semitism and in that respect of course the united states have very very decisive roles since the internet platforms and many global players have their headquarters in the u.s so of course we discuss the special responsibility of u.s administration and the u.s government as a whole and, and federal states to address the issue. And Katerina, I also want to ask you, how, how useful is the IRA working definition in the work that you're doing, this particular portion or expression of anti-Semitism as well as others? The IRA working definition is really the basis of uh, everything we do. Um, we had a uh, survey among 16,500 Jews in 2018, which is, by the way, currently being uh, redone. From that survey in 2018, we can derive that the examples in the IRA definition are congruent with what the majority of European Jews regards as anti-Semitic. And for example, we know that the Jews see Holocaust-related anti-Semitism as the most pernicious form. So these are important aspects also, and they help us in our policy making. And that's why this survey is really key. 
The IRA definition also gives the possibility to go into different areas. For example, when it comes to coding of certain aspects, if you don't want to say Jew, but you say Sio, it's very clear it's anti-Semitic and it's just anti-Semitism hiding behind anti-Zionism. And I believe the politicization of the IRA definition has happened because the definition works. It has become a tool where people, Jews mainly, but not only, who perceive that certain forms of expressions are anti-Semitic and could not explain that, in particular also when it comes to Israel, in the past why they perceived it like this, now they have a document to refer to. And in fact, the European Commission itself has referred to the IRA definition in a response to the European Parliament recently, when it came to making clear that the term apartheid is not acceptable in reference to Israel and that in the IRA definition, we very clearly say that seeing the existence of Israel as a racist endeavor is anti-Semitic. Felix, as I said, you joined AJC Project Interchange on a trip to Israel. At the White House, did you discuss the challenge of how to recognize and clearly distinguish criticism of Israeli policies versus criticism of its existence? Yes, actually, this came up. And as we know, the so-called Israel-related anti-Semitism is the most common form of anti-Semitism worldwide. And the fight against it often doesn't take place because it is not discerned. People don't recognize Israel-related anti-Semitism. So uh, this is the basis of any fight against discrimination. I'm actually surprised by what you said about Israel-related anti-Semitism being the most common around the world. I had thought it was more white supremacist-inspired anti-Semitism. But no, that is not the case in your encounters. No, in my encounters not. And also in Germany, of course, since we had the whitest supremacist form of anti-Semitism in its most extreme forms, of course, developed by the Nazis. Of course, it exists still, but it's not that the racial form is not very common. People don't dare to openly express it because they also expect a counter speech resistance. Whereas when you say something against Israel, people think that this is widely accepted. Although I think deeply these people who use Israel-related anti-Semitism are anti-Semites, but they don't dare to say Jews, but they dare to say Israel instead. So this is one of the reasons why it is so commonly used. I personally like to say that the IRA definition encourages conversations, civil conversations, and constructive conversations by explaining what's potentially offensive, what's not, and why from a Jewish point of view. I find it extremely helpful, and I understand precisely why so many institutions have adopted it. Do you find that to be the case as well? In Europe, our approach has been to look at what the Jews regard as anti-Semitic. That has been the basis. And this is like with other groups where we have a so-called victim-based approach. We use that as basis and that there is then a controversy from one political side or another. That, again, is part of the democratic discussion. And people have to live with the fact that if they say something, which they can say under free speech and, you know, not everything that is anti-Semitic, even in Europe, is illegal, they have to live with the fact that someone else calls them out and calls them out with a reference to a widely adopted document. So in that sense, the IRA definition, because it is non-legally binding, gives a tool that does not infringe on free speech. Quite the contrary, it allows free speech for both sides. 
So what are your metrics for measuring how successful these strategies are? And I think I know the answer to my second question, which is how important is data, hate crimes data, for example, versus the perceptions of the Jewish community? So for us, it has been important indeed to create a system by which hate crime data and anti-Semitic incidents that are below the hate crime threshold because they create an atmosphere that is unpleasant for Jews and where they you know, feel that they cannot thrive. So that that is being collected in a better way. Because the Fundamental Rights Agency of the EU that has an annual report on anti-Semitism, they collect the data that they get from the member states. And then some member states, they still have a reported record of zero incidents. And I wish that was true. We know it is not. And therefore, we are now working, and Austria is in lead with this important initiative, a mechanism and a methodology to record incidents in a way that it can then also be compared across Europe. This means change in the national systems, and it means also the recognition that we need to record incidents based on the IRA definition when they are not necessarily illegal. That will make anti-Semitism even more visible, and sure Felix can say something about the increase of incidents that has happened since Germany has also put better channels in place for recording easier channels. And so for us, the incidents, when incidents go up, you know, it has two sides. On the one side, yes, we feel and we, I think the perception of Jews is that anti-Semitism is still much more visible in the public space. That is more direct, that people have no shame to sign things off with their name. We saw the huge confusion around the documenta and not recognizing forms of anti-Semitism by the authorities and so on. So all of this is there and is very important. But I believe on the other side that we see the structures coming up and being developed physically and being there to stay shows that progress is there as well. How do you measure success in Germany? Yeah, well, it's a, this is a tough question, of course. Uh, you can measure the awareness, and there we have positive results. Actually, when I came into office in 2018, only 20% of the German population was of the opinion that anti-Semitism is a serious problem for our society. Now, we have done a recent research and, and survey, and the answer was more than 60% of the Germans do think that anti-Semitism is a threat to society and an important threat to democracy and not only to the Jews. So this is very good. And also that media coverage of anti-Semitic incidents is more active, more visible. So Katharina has mentioned the Documenta Art Show last year, where we had openly anti-Semitic works of art that, that were on, on display. One thing was the scandal that it was at all possible that these works of art were being shown, but the positive the side effect was that there was a really big debate, that there was a big wave of resistance against that, that in the end, the organizers of the Documenta Art Show were actually forced to put this work of art away. Of course, you can say this is cosmetic, it's only the consequences, but still, when I mean, we had the right initiatives, the right counter movement was there. And we see also the number of entities adopting the IRA working definition. We see more and more school classes that have projects in remembrance culture, for instance, projects that address the issue. And we have a better picture of what's going on in Germany. There was an important aspect for us as well. When I started, 
70% of European Jews actually thought that the EU was not addressing the issue of anti-Semitism effectively or at all. <laughs> and I believe that perception has changed because we have managed on a European level, but also with all the member states to really, with these strategies, raise the awareness and therefore also raise the reaction from the political sphere, but also from civil society and make sure that there is better respondents. We are not there yet, but I would hope that in our next survey, we can see that at least the trust that things are being addressed from the institutional side will have increased. I'm curious, my last question is, I'm curious what your takeaways were from being here in the States and watching people kind of grapple with and and try to wrap their heads around coming up with this strategy. You were not only at the White House, you went to Los Angeles and Miami, in addition to DC. What was your takeaway, your biggest takeaway from watching Americans wrestle with this? So for me, what was interesting is one aspect of our strategy that we have put central, which is fostering Jewish life. So to make sure that Jews can thrive in Europe. And we are, of course, acutely aware that Jewish communities are small because of the Shoah, not because they decided to go elsewhere. And so this is why we see our responsibility to actively support Jewish life and to normalize it and to make sure that Jewish traditions are known. In fact, the survey that I mentioned before shows that only 3% of Europeans feel they know a lot about Jewish traditions. So, you know, the knowledge is not there. And if the knowledge is not there, then often the understanding is not there. Once you have that understanding, then it's much more difficult to hate or to engage in hate speech. And that aspect is very different in the US. You know, in LA, there are 600,000 Jews. This is half as many Jews as are in the whole of Europe. So that aspect of a normalization of Jewish life that we see there in LA is amazing to see. At the same time, there had been attacks on Jews, even two shooting attacks just before I was there in Pico Robinson, and then the mailings. And so suddenly also on Jews in the US, these attacks are becoming more virulent and are more direct and more open and more threatening in a way. And so we can see how important it is also in the US to engage in this aspect of fostering Jewish life. And I believe that there we can learn a lot from each other because civil society in the US is very active and is very engaged with these matters of equality and non-discrimination, standing up for each other. You know what I take home? A sticker from the AJC office, which says Jewish and proud. And I'm going to make a sticker, European Jewish and proud. We would have not been able to do this seven years ago because no one would have used the sticker. I think that in that sense, also, the situation here has really changed. That's a fascinating observation that you were taken by how large it was and vibrant it was. And of gratifying as well to hear you say that, <laughs> Katerina. Felix, how about you? What was your takeaway either from D.C. or Miami? 
Well, two things. One is the very fact that the second gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, is making this his personal issue is really impressive. And that's the way it has to work. You need people in the political leadership to address it. And that was one first very, very impressive thing I take home. And the second is, of course, the way it is also the so-called coalition building is done. Because since we all know that anti-Semitism is not the only form of discrimination, we have racism, we have anti-Muslim hatred and particularly the US is a very apt country to form coalitions. I think of the way Jewish organizations supported Martin Luther King in the 1960s for the fight against racism and to see how this would evolve. Maybe this is less than in the 1960s, but still this coalition building and the way AJC is actually organizing it. We had in Miami also black mayors from the wider Miami community who engage in the fight against anti-Semitism and who know that it is good that if we have success in the fight against anti-Semitism, we also fight racism at the same time. The way this is being addressed in the U.S. is really impressive, and I take this home for my work here in Germany. Well, thank you so much for those reflections, and thank you both for doing your part to make the world safer for us to be proudly Jewish. We hope your meetings here in America were fruitful for both Americans as we develop the strategy and yourselves as well. And thank you for joining us. Thank you very much, Manya. It's been a pleasure. If you missed last week's episode, be sure to tune in for my conversation with one of the world's most effective champions of women's rights, human rights, and democratic values, the incomparable Felice Gare, in honor of Women's History Month. Thank you for listening. This episode is brought to you by AJC. Our producer is Atara Lakritz. Our sound engineer is TK Broderick. You can subscribe to People of the Pod on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Podcasts. Or learn more at AJC.org slash People of the Pod. The views and opinions of our guests don't necessarily reflect the positions of AJC. We'd love to hear your views and opinions or your questions. You can reach us at peopleofthepod at AJC.org. If you've enjoyed this episode, please be sure to tell your friends, tag us on social media with hashtag peopleofthepod, and hop on to Apple Podcasts to rate us and write a review to help more listeners find us. Tune in next week for another episode of People of the Pod.